Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So very excited about our guest today. Our guest, and we're definitely going to learn a lot going from corporate to startups, going from corporate CEO to founding CEO, which is a really big difference, but you name it. And, you know, obviously he's uh, raised a ton of money, you know, also being outside of the U.S. So I think we're going to be learning quite a bit on that as well, because we have a lot of people tuning in outside of the U.S. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, today Petri Alava. Welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to join. Thanks for the opportunity. So, Petri, originally born and raised there in, in Finland, in Helsinki. So, uh, how was life for you growing up? Wow. So, the first of all, I wasn't actually born in Helsinki. I was born in the middle of Finland. So, the yeah, let's say it was very safe childhood um, in almost kind of countryside, small country town, countryside town, uh, playing ice hockey, uh, meeting friends, uh, Smoking, drinking, whatever, let's say, kind of things Finnish youngsters are doing. Very nice childhood. And obviously, you did uh, you did learn quite a bit as well from your mother. You know, your mother was a source of inspiration to you. That that is great. Say, so, let's say, yeah, let's say, my mother was called. Let's say she was born in Lapland, which is kind of for the outskirts of Finland. Let's say, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, was was raised in a very poor family, like like let's say in 1935, the all the Finnish Finnish families were. Alcoholic father and bringing all the all the let's say money of, of the family and still she was kind of off, let's say in very hard times uh, let's say building a nice career and learning me that yes let's say even a woman when when you are kind of, of patient when you are let's say uh, pushy when when you are let's say determined you can build a nice career so let's say by doing correct things and being passionate you can get things done and that's what I've been learning from her. Very cool. And in your case, obviously, I mean, you were, you know, very early on getting into technology and you did your computer science degree and, and so forth. So, so why, why getting into computers? I mean, what, what really, you know, got you in that direction? Yeah, let's say, I, I was going to say, say for, for some, some weird reasons, uh, apart from, from playing ice hockey, I was also interested in, in figures. So I was very good in ma- mathematics, in, in physics. And let's say it was just kind of sounding very logical. When I was actually seven years old, I decided that I would become an engineer. Very cool. And in your case, obviously, you did your master's too in engineering. So really getting into it. But, 
you know, one of the things that uh, you did, you know, was definitely going into the business, you know, into the corporate, you know, kind of like approach versus like uh, doing your own startup. I guess like probably Finland, you know, like wasn't, uh, and I guess anywhere, you know, outside of Silicon Valley was probably not that big of a thing doing startups until recently. So, so tell us about really those early beginnings, you know, in your uh, career. Yeah, let's say if, if you go back to, I was let's say, coming out from the university, 1989. So let's say, of course, it was very, very different times. Let's say the people were typically employed in Finland by, by big corporates. And, and that, was, that was your lifetime carrier. So that was the kind of, of times when you typically started working in, in, a, in, a, in a larger company and planning your whole life around working for, for one company. I started actually as, as a business controller which is kind of weird for, for an engineer. But uh, as I was just interested in kind of combination of, of uh, how the figures are impacting the business and how you can impact on decision-making through figures, uh, that kind of, of was catched to me. I was also doing some, some, some programming. So it was kind of a combo between, let's say, working with the numbers and programming all the, all the programs needed. Um, then I figured out that it was far too, let's say, uh, it wasn't my job. Uh, I wanted to be out. I wanted to be, let's say, selling. I wanted to meet people and to making different kind of impact. And then in 1992, I, I got the kind of first sales position, which kind of was really, really nice learning. And from there, my my, my career was growing. I, I let's say I got the first response, BN, BNL responsibility in 1996. Uh, became a CEO in the robotics in in 2001, changing for the first time in my life a company. And, and taking the carrier further from, from there. And, and, you know, one thing that is very interesting is that those folks that are able to really blend well the technical side of it with the business side of it, they're very dangerous and in a very good way. I mean, you've seen that with people like Steve Jobs and so forth, where, I mean, they become incredible people at sales at really dealing with customers, but then also with really understanding the problem and, the, and the how you resolve the problem. I think in your case, you know, having that background too in, in engineering, you know, really got you, you know, uh, uh, I would say like a, like a leg up when it comes to problem solving. So I guess, you know, when you now are in the business world, I mean, what kind of obstacles or hurdles did you encounter? Uh, and especially, I mean, in this case, you know, with this robotics company, I mean, you were essentially working on turning around a business. I mean, that's, that's not a small thing. So how do you go about turning around a business that is not working? Wow. So let's say, I think it goes back to troubleshooting, really. First of all, understanding in, in depth that, that what's the wrong with it, with the company, uh, discussing with the customers, really understanding that, that what, why you are not getting the right price or whatever is, is wrong. Uh, so let's say first is really gathering information and getting understand that that what's wrong. And then let's say, just let's say, get the right people around, uh, because say one, one people can't, or one, one person can't make the change. So getting the right people around, and then, so let's say, just by, by daily actions on, on making corrections and, and correcting those things, what do, you, you, what do you believe are wrong? First, naturally looking at the kind of low-hanging fruits to get kind of, of easy fixes, get first results quickly, getting trust around that the change is working. And then, let's say, just being passionate and, and let's say, being transparent and working thoroughly the, the change plan. And let's say working very much with the people, because at the end of the day, you need to be changing the behavior of people. So getting people along with you and getting the customers along. Well, 100%. I mean, obviously, this was quite a, 
quite an interesting journey for you, but this led you to another role, and this was with Kekila, where again you became the the CEO. I mean, what what were you doing there? Yeah, so I was I was um, now now then first one kind of for growing global business. Also, some couple of the businesses where the, because that was a group of companies, so I was a kind of group group president. A uh, couple of businesses were having major trouble. So one one part of the job was really kind of for cutting costs and restructuring the business. And some part of the business was just growing, let's say, uh, getting the people to burn, getting getting some growth. So, yeah, it was a fantastic time from 2005, 2015. What wasn't kind of, of let's say, my best side was that, that we were a stock-listed company. Uh, so, let's say, let's say I, I was kind of, of not really appreciating too much the, the kind of corporate governance issues, uh, risk management processes. I, I was just burning to, to make business, uh, meeting customers, making growth. So it was kind of balancing, learning a lot. Today, I understand that, let's say, corporate governance issues, risk management issues, those need to be also in place. But at that time, it was maybe my, my play. But amazing how you go from putting out a fire to putting out another one. I mean, who, who needs a fire extinguisher when Petri is around? Eh? It's amazing. So in your case, eh, Petri, I mean, you turned 50, and then all of a sudden you find yourself, uh, now, you know, the, the, the contract is terminated, and you find yourself, like, thinking, what's next for me? And obviously you're 50. I mean, you're not in your 20s when you're, like, kind of, like, rethinking, you know, the, your career and such. But in your case, you started to see the technologies around you. So what happened next? Yeah, so I was walking around. Let's say, of course, I was also considering whether I should be a, a corporate CEO for corporate CEO even for for a larger company. But then, let's say, what what was really kicking me was the the innovation I heard, innovation which could be turning different waste streams into kind of highly valuable material to be used in fashion or textiles. Uh, and what was kind of, of let's say, interesting to me in that. Was that let's say I had also a background in in being a chairman of the of the board uh, for a waste management company. So I had learned that that what's the uh, how much the societies are changing, how much the legislation is changing, and what's the kind of, of potential value of waste. And uh, then learning, let's say, when then I had also the opportunity to discuss with the kind of potential customers of that technology companies like uh, HM or or or. Uh, VF Corporation from US, Patagonia. And what I was learning was that, let's say, those customers really had a, a burning desire on, on changing their material strategy. So I, I saw that there's a kind of honest willingness to change. And I understood that there may be a potential technology to solve the problems. Of course, let's say, as the technology was, uh, it, it was about chemistry. Uh, I had no background at all at that chemistry. So I understood that I can maybe give a, give the, or give the and deliver the experience on on building global business, but I had no skills on on, on chemistry. So uh, then I, I met the, the wonderful person Ali Harlin, a, a professor uh, of the biomaterial science, and um, just he, he's kind of a really excellent problem solver. So I thought, okay, with the, his kind of personality, uh, with his kind of of the uh, problem solving skills and combining my skills and experience on on creating global business. This could be something. Of course, I understood right from the beginning, let's say that that we could be just an enabler of the change in the global fashion industry. And that's where, how, how we started building the foundation of the company, understanding our role as, as, a, as technology geeks, technologist provider, 
and then how to play ourselves into that that global supply chain and start making the change. So then obviously this was going from corporate CEO to founding CEO. I mean, obviously a massive difference. Tell us about that adjustment of, of all of a sudden, you know, this is something new. How did you really get yourself up to speed? And, and what were the main differences that, or the main challenges that, that you really had to kind of like self-develop yourself quickly to really, you know, be effective on what you had in front of you? Yeah, I, I think as a matter of fact, the big, biggest battle I, I had at home, say the, my, my wife started a uh, entrepreneur career in 2010. Uh, she founded a publishing house. Uh, at that time, we had three sons, uh, and the sons started to say that that mother, you are you are you are, are kind of threatening our life because we, we are getting less incomes. Uh, we can't enjoy anymore that that kind of life we had earlier. Then in 2015, when I started saying to my kids that hey, uh, there's a potential that I, I also become a, a founding member or founding CEO entrepreneur, they was kind of shocked. Hey, father, you can't be <laughs> you can't be destroying our lives. So I, I think that was the battle. And my, my wife said that, hey, it, we can't take the risk that there are, are two entrepreneurs in the same family. So she was kind of liking that I would be still as a keeping the track on the as a corporate CEO. But say the as, as when we threw the kind of potential what what was what was existing with the technology. She understood that 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 could be the let's say once in a lifetime chance on making something different because it's not only about kind of making money. What what we are really doing is is that that we could be having a massive impact on on the way we live in this planet. So it was kind of at the same time also let's say from the mental side very appealing. Got it. But of, of course let's say life was very very different. Just say in the, in a, being a corporate CEO let's say. Most of your days is most of your days are, are around, let's say, people challenges. Uh, whereas, let's say, being a founding CEO, I was working alone for two and a half years almost. So it was so so different. And also, one thing what was different that, let's say, I had to sell the business to to get some funding. Earlier, I was kind of only convincing to the board of directors, and let's say, money was flowing in from from the from naturally from the business. So there was existing cash flow. Which you could invest on building new business. Now I had to go around, sell the idea, and I was believing that let's say it would be much easier with my background, with my connections. And I was kind of my first plan is that it's it's going to take six months. It turned out to be two and a half years uh, to get the money needed for for building the capacity. As this technology is really also about kind of manufacturing, so you need quite a bit of, of capital to to build the the manufacturing facility. Because how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, around 50 million euros, which I understand for, for Silicon Valley people, it might, might sound little. Uh, the capital market in Europe is very, very different. So let's say in, in Finland to raise such a money, let's say you, you need to be working holistically and, and very thorough. So the, the money is floating not the same way in Finland, in Europe as it's floating in, in Silicon Valley. So, so in, in this case, I mean, obviously 50 million euros in Finland is, uh, is pretty amazing. But I guess in, in this case, I mean, you were you were alluding to it, you know, that uh, convincing investors with deep tech, you know, probably early on was was a challenge. So what would you say was the turning point to get the investors to realize, oh, there's there's something here. Let's 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 invest. Yeah, so I think really was that that we got it so far 
with almost no money that, that we had products available. So we were able to demonstrate, for example, to HM Group that you can manufacture high quality genes from, from our material. And that was the kind of tipping point that they really understood and, and, and started to believe that, hey, this is really, this is really true. It's, it's not, not only about story. So before that, it was only a story. And you had, let's say, let's say little punch of, of dirty fibers, which wasn't that appealing or, 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 let's say, convincing. But when they were able to turn themselves the material into kind of high-quality high fabrics or products, that was the, the turning point, tipping point. And another thing that you've learned also when it comes to fundraising is the importance of sense of urgency. Tell us about this. Exactly. So the, it was kind of amazing that, say, as, as we have got on board strategic investors like uh, Adidas and Zalando and uh, H&M Group and so forth, uh, that still last winter, we were kind of having amazingly long journey to raise the, the last capital round. The, the, the corporates were not kind of, of, of feeling the sense of urgency to close the deal. They were kind of waiting on, until I, I had to give them a warning that, that we are running out, the money, running out the money in two weeks' time and we have to lo- kind of close the whole operation if we are not getting funded. And then first we had been working for 12 months to work on papers, contracts, and then the closing happened in one week. But it was just that they were kind of missing within the corporates the sense of urgency and probably were just kind of, kind of trying to mitigate all the time the risk that maybe tomorrow is even more convincing. And then, let's say, it really had to go so bad that, that let's say, making a threat that we have to close the business if, if we are not raising the money as planned. So that was a pretty terrible experience. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's like I, I always tell entrepreneurs that, you know, there's not alignment when it comes to time between investors and entrepreneurs because for the investors, Time is their best friend because the more time that they let go by, the, the more that they can see how you execute and it risks their investment. And time as a founder is your worst enemy because the, the less time, the more chances of, of going bankrupt because you, you run out of runway. So I guess one, one of the things that comes to mind, Petri, is that being in Finland, you know, where the, the, where the startup, you know, ecosystem, you know, perhaps, you know, is now, you know, being more developed, I'm sure that the investor ecosystem is going to take longer to develop, you know, at the same at the same pace or speed. So, how did you go about finding investors in a market that is not as developed as perhaps Silicon Valley or here, you know, in, in New York City? Yeah, say so the the as such the, the startup ecosystem is actually pretty well developed in Finland. Of of course, it's it's quite a much smaller. So, as as in total in Finland, we have only. 5.3 million people. So even from that that uh, perspective, it's pretty easy to understand the market is relatively small. Say my experience from here was that let's say early on when we were discussing with the kind of typical venture capital companies, the deep tech was not that well speaking to their terms or or wasn't kind of well meeting their expectations, as they were kind of typically looking at businesses which which scale fast and fail fast. As, as in our case, and, and we're working with it, kind of, let's say, manufacturing-oriented deep tech, let's say, building a factory takes several years. So it wasn't really kind of that interesting for the VCs, which actually led us to speak first with the kind of, of strategic investors, uh, fashion companies like H&M's and Adidas's and Zalando's, Nike's, 
you just name it. And of course, as, as the, the so solution, what we have, the technology to turn waste streams into high quality textile fibers, which look and feel like cotton, is highly appealing. So it, it was, let's say, much easier to get convinced the, the, the brands and the fashion players that the, the material is having re relevance. Of course, let's say kind of, of getting the investment through in, in such corporates, it's, it's then a long journey. But first we got convinced the material development people, marketing people, let's say brand people on, in those corporates. And one day we're kind of, of having the good conviction that that's uh, and convinced that the, the materialist is meeting their requirements. They were then convincing their investment people that this is the right investment. So let's say we, we had to go through the other routes on, on getting the uh, decision makers convinced that this is a good investment case. So what ended up becoming the business model of Infinited Fiber Company? We, we are in a technology licensed business because uh, let's, let's face the fact that the, the textile manufacturing business is very, very global. Uh, the supply chain is, is, is pretty complex. Most of the manufacturing is happening in Asia. For example, only China is responsible for, for producing 70% of the, all the textile materials worldwide. So the, the market is in Asia. Uh, and in order to get through our technology into the supply chain requires quite heavy investments. So the only way to kind of, of, of scale it say reasonably fast is through technology licensing take the benefit of, of very large manufacturing companies, get them investing on the capacity and, and get the kind of a pull, a pull from, from there. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, you know, in your case, one, one thing that you encountered was the challenging part of, of building the team. I mean, when you go from a founding team where you're, they're getting, you know, a, a piece of the action and the title and all of that stuff, I find that, Convincing people that have a very nice paying job to take a pay cut to join a startup that you know with all the uncertainty. I mean, it's not a it's not a small thing. So, how did you go about really surrounding yourself by the right people and getting them excited enough to take that leap of faith and join you guys in the journey? Mm, yes, very good question. Because I, I was all, always a bit jealous. So the, the other startups, which were kind of founded by a larger team, uh, having a combination of skills. Um, in our case, I would say I was almost alone. Then, then I would say I was having a half-time partner, a Professor Ali Harleen. So we had a very, very little team and very little resources in the beginning. Uh, then we also understood right from the beginning that, say, the, to be convincing in this kind of manufacturing space uh, and, and kind of chemical space, uh, we'd rather look for, for pretty mature people uh, in order to kind of sell very high investments to the customers. So the, we had to be really, as, as you described that, that we had to be kind of convincing to professional people, typically, let's say, at the age of 40 or 50, to be successful in this business. And that, that, that turned out to be very, very challenging. We didn't have the kind of, of, of founder position existing, uh, so we had to be naturally using some, some other elements. And mostly the, the, the challenge was that the people were feeling the, and, and sensing the risks from, from, let's say, jumping from a large corporate, let's say, pretty stable, safe positions, nicely paced positions to, a, to the uncertainty of, of working in a startup. 
and let's say it was let's say just very very long long track to work let's say to work closely let's say typically we started to work with some of, of these people i say we were buying some consultancy some little jobs so that they learn to work let's say get to know us uh, and when they got to know us the, the amount of freedom what we what we can offer uh, and the kind of amount of challenges what we were able to provide i think that was the tipping point that the people were feeling let's say great to work with us of course let's say on on the way we have definitely learned that that other people are not capable to do, to work in this kind of, of uncertain environment very fast paced page uh industry or, or or working environment where you are learning on daily basis you don't have the kind of free year strategies where everything is stable and you you know exactly what to do every day so it hasn't been let's say successful for all the people but yes let's say from let's say being let's say just transparent um giving people chances to to learn more giving an impact giving them freedom to, to also fail uh that that was probably the, then the, the the success that that we've been able to recruit also highly professional people from from well paid positions and for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope of operations you know of the company anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else yeah so the, today we have 40 people uh they are, they are all kind of technology people um and what is kind of strange for for our stories is that let's say even though i said that that we are in a licensing business so we also learned on a way that um to be even more convincing on the technology licensing business we need to be building a a a large demonstration facility by ourselves and now we're in a process of of raising 350 million euros to build a kind of commercial scale factory to finland which will be then employing 250 people nice so imagine you go to sleep tonight petri and you wake up in a world 5 years later where the vision of the company is fully realized what does that world look like yeah it it, it would mean that let's say all the people all over the world have some some sort of connection with the infina fiber as we call it so the, because this is really a kind of of global market space where we are working the the brand customers who we have on board are really kind of, of they, they are really let's say loving the material what we are able to produce the story how we make it and we believe that that one day this material will be available for everyone so that it's an affordable material it's beautiful story it's it's sustainable story it's all about circularity of materials so that's what i believe and imagine if i'm able to put you into a time machine and i'm bringing you back to that moment where your contract was terminated and you were thinking like what's next imagine you have the opportunity of sitting down with that younger petri and you're able to give that younger petri one piece of advice before launching the business what would that be and why given what you know now wow very good question so the even though i'm high, i'm very optimistic person so let's say thinking that when i was sitting sitting alone and think about the business opportunity i wasn't probably even me i wasn't let's say even possible to dream as big as as it could be to say in 2017 november we hired a first person so it it's not that long ago and and let's say looking from today's world and situation where we that that in very few years we've been now signing contracts worth um tens of millions euros per customer for for very long uh term contracts 
commitments to buy the fiber. So I probably I wasn't I wasn't believing that that this kind of changes can happen so quickly uh, when you just have the right team in place. And one thing that uh, comes to mind too is, what would you say is a book that you wish you would have read sooner? And now I can't re- recall the name the, the author, of the author. Was it Yannick Noach or something like that? It, it's, it's an Israeli guy who write, wrote the, let's say, the uh, history of humans, both the past and the future. Uh, I think it was kind of uh, homo sapiens, yes, yes. Homo, homo something. Yeah which was kind of highly interesting and highly impactful book, what I was reading. Yeah. And, and why would you say that, that that was such a wow book to you? Yeah, let's say, uh, the, 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 I think the, the author's personality was that, uh, that he was kind of so wild and free in his thinking that how the future can be and kind of, of having the skills uh, and capacity to combine so many facts together and vision to the future very bravely, that, that we are becoming robot, robots and, and let's say there will be a superhuman. So really nice story about, let's say, uh, how, how the future can be so different that you can't imagine. I love it. So Petri, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, let's say, let's say give, give me a call, give me a, send me an email. Very, very happy to talk with you. Amazing. Uh, what, what's your email for the people listening? Yes, my email is, is Petri, P-E-T-R-I dot a l a v a at gmail.com fantastic well petri thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today it was my great pleasure if you like the show make sure that you hit that subscribe button if you could leave a review as well that would be fantastic and if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself share it with a friend perhaps they also appreciate it so also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.